G'day everybody, it's good to be here once again and to uh, tackle the impossible of uh, the next 30 minutes to uh, try to tell you everything I know about suffering and uh, why God allows it. And um, be good, thanks for being on the journey with me. This is, uh, as I said last week, it's more a teaching time than it is an inspirational sermon. But uh, thank you for that prayer because I believe the Holy Spirit can take teaching and can uh, impress it upon our not only our minds but our hearts as well and our souls and uh, make it uh, really meaningful to us as we go out and uh, live the life that God's called us to live. And so uh, we're, we're going to be continuing on from last week. Last week I, um, I tried to uh, talk about the importance of First uh, Peter 3, for instance, and uh, what it uh, tells us in relation to advocating for the faith, and I'd rather the term advocating for the faith. We could probably have that first slide up now. Thanks, Andrew. Um, talking about advocating for the faith rather than defending the faith because I, I like the, uh, the idea of the positive tone of advocating rather than being defensive about our faith. We don't need to be defensive about our faith. And we talked about First Peter 3.15 as uh, set, part, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. In other words, let your life tell the story before anything else. Uh, always be ready to advocate for the hope that you live by when people ask you questions. So, you know, you're living in certain ways and you're in relationships, you're at work or you're across the back, back fence or, or you're in the supermarket or whatever and your life is different. And people will, you know, in the relationship, they'll ask you questions. How come you live like that? How, how can, you know, with all the, out of my place over the uh, last few days, we've been without power since uh, last Wednesday. And, um, uh, you know, the, the winds, there's no damage at my place, which I'm very thankful for. But all around us, trees are down everywhere and power lines down everywhere. I'm at Mount Evelyn. And, um, and in the midst of that, you know, that's a great opportunity to, to live with hope and to uh, not be a complainer about uh, no hot water and no heat. I did borrow a generator yesterday, so it's uh, thing, things are looking up and I don't smell like I would have yesterday. <laughs> I had a shower this morning. Um, and and <laughs> hallelujah, somebody just said. <laughs> That's what Debbie said too. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, just in everyday life, you, you, you live... Uh, the, the hope that is within you. And people ask questions about that. And so use those, ap- uh, those questions as opportunities to explain your lifestyle. But then Peter says, but do it with gentleness and respect. You know, don't come over like a, like, like a bomb and, uh, you know, do it gently, uh, and respecting other people because other people will have different beliefs and different reasons for believing. And that's uh, really important to be mindful of and respectful of. So that's what we covered last week. But this week I want to look at uh, the two questions uh, that you as a church uh, have given me to address in this very short series. Uh, before I get to those two questions, um, I want to uh, suggest that we should start from a position of what is known in some circles as agnosticism. So if we could have for the next slide... Please, Andrew. <clears throat> Agnosticism is a bit of an invented word, probably. It comes from the idea of gnosis, uh, which means knowledge. Uh, we all know about agnosticism. It's a position that says we can't know anything. Okay, so the idea of agnosticism is I can't know, uh, I can't come to a certainty, to an assurance of anything. Knowledge is actually beyond us. So that's agnosticism. 
But agnosticism is a starting position that says, I don't know everything. It's not that I can't know things, but it's, I don't know everything. So it's a position of humility, or to, uh, to use a rather clumsy big word, a big term, it's called epistemological humility. Uh, the idea of epistemology is the science of knowing, and I'm very humble about that. I'm, I'm humble in my uh, uh, suggestion that I can know things. And so agnosticism is a starting position that says I don't know everything. There are some things that I will never know and I will never understand. And Psalm 131 comes to mind where the psalmist there says, I'm resting my soul in you, Lord, like a weaned child in a mother's arms. I'm not going to be uh, thinking about things that are beyond me. I'm just going to rest in you. And that's the idea of being humble in our approach to knowledge. Some things will always remain a mystery. Now, that used to bug me like crazy. You know, as, as an academic in a theological college and with this idea that I can, I can handle everything, the problem is time. Just give me more time and I'll be able to come to an understanding of this element. You know, just give me more time. And I realised, and especially through the writings of Eugene Peterson, that that's not true. That mystery is a good thing. And that there, I will never know answers to things that I wish I had answers to. And that's okay. And that's the radical departure, the last little bit, and that's okay. It's all very well to say that things will always be a mystery to me, but then to sit with that and say that's okay, that's quite a different thing. But that's the position of agnosticism. It's also the truth that I don't have a corner on the truth. I don't, I, everything that I think that I know doesn't mean to say that I can't learn something from you, of course, and, and from anybody else. I want to learn as much as I can. My father used to talk about being an informed conservative. He, that was his position. He's a conservative. He, he conserves the truth that he's been raised with and that he's come to understand from the scriptures and, and from, from science and, and from various other areas. He sits with that conservatively, but he wants to be informed. He will always be open. To receiving new information and uh, he don't, didn't only talk about being an informed conservative that's what I grew up with and I grew up with never being afraid to ask questions never being afraid to seek knowledge uh, beyond what I know already never be afraid it's okay it's things that I discover it's not going to take God by surprise that's okay and so to always be a conservative but an informed conservative is a good position uh, it, it's a position rather than arrogance. And so I want you to hang on to that idea of agnosticism, that as we go through through these uh, questions, I'm going to give you some suggestions, but I'm not suggesting I know everything about it. And you, the, the things that you know about it will be really important. But you know what? These are the things that we really should be sitting around a living room with, uh, you know, 12 to 15 people uh, talking about in, in conversation, in dialogue, because everything that I say here is going to raise more questions. I'm warning you now. And, and I, I'll, I'll be able to hear you say, yeah, but what about, and what about, and, and, and I agree, you know, those what abouts are really important. So just know the limitations of what we're dealing with here. So let's deal with the big questions. Next slide, please, Andrew. Dealing with the big questions, the, the first thing uh, to, to, uh, uh, 
to help us to deal with the big questions is to ask the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Now, that might sound like a simple question, but it's not. It's not. To understand what Scripture is saying about a whole host of things is really difficult at times. And we need what I call sound hermeneutical principles. Now, again, hermeneutics, fancy word, just simply means the science of interpretation. It's how we interpret the Bible. And there are principles for interpreting the Bible. And there are sound hermeneutical principles. My students uh, went through, through college hearing me talking about SHPs. How's the SHPs going? Sound hermeneutical principles. And if they got sick of that, that's good because it means that they were hearing me say what I wanted to say. You've got to have sound ways of interpreting the scripture for instance don't proof text the scripture don't get one little text of scripture and say oh here's the teaching on this whole subject that the bible has because that's not true you've got to have a whole of bible approach that's a sound hermeneutical principle and then you've got to ask the question are there different interpretations of this uh, even within the evangelical world, you know, are there different interpretations around this passage or this question that I'm asking? But a really important hermeneutical principle is to have a look at the character of God that lies behind this passage. What is the character of God? Because there are very clear passages in Scripture where God reveals himself, where God says, this is what I am like. So it's not a story that can be interpreted in different ways. It's God's instruction, very clear instruction, especially, for instance, when he, when he met Moses up on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses said, if I don't know who you are, I'm not going to go back down there and lead those people. They're your people, and they're causing me a lot of pain right throughout my body. And, um, and so he, uh, he, he says to God, if you don't tell me who you are, you say that you're going to go with us, if you don't tell me who you are, then I'm not going. I'm not going to be a leader because I told you I didn't want to be a leader in the first place. And so uh, God reveals himself. All right, I'll, I will reveal myself to you. And God reveals himself as a compassionate God and a loving God and a God that is committed to maintaining love and uh, a God who is long-suffering and, and, and patient and, and so on. And these are very clear descriptors of what God is like. So when we approach Scripture, no matter what the story is, no matter what the question is that we bring to Scripture, we should always be saying, what's the character of God behind this? What is God telling me about himself in this particular story? And then ultimately, it's to go back to Jesus. It's to say, how does my knowledge of Jesus throw light upon this question this subject that i'm interested in how does my knowledge of jesus where does it throw light upon it because john in john 1 and paul in colossians tells us that jesus is the perfect revelation of what god is really like so we can go back to god telling moses about you know what he's like but if you want to see god in the flesh you look at jesus if you want to know what Jesus is really like and where he, where, where he stands on certain questions, have a look at Jesus. This is God in the flesh. And it's a perfect representation of what God is like. And so that becomes a very uh, important point when we're dealing with the big questions. Secondly, I want to say you need to ask the question, what is the question? What type of question is this? For instance... It might be a pastoral question. If we're talking about suffering, 
It might be from somebody whose loved one is going through terrible suffering at this particular time. And, and, and that person doesn't necessarily want a theological treatise on the problem of suffering. <laughs> Probably but that, that person wants to be heard in the grief and the, and the struggle and the sadness and the depression and, and the anger. So you see, it could be a pastoral question, and so your answer needs to be tempered to, to that pastoralia. Is it an intellectual question? Is it something I've sat down and I've thought about, and I'd really like to have that theological treatise? You know, I'd really like to explore this more intellectually. Well, good, you know, then there's room for that. Or is it a provocative question? Is it somebody is just trying to trip you up? You know, Jesus got a lot of those, didn't he? Jesus got a lot of provocative questions as he went through. And he didn't give them much attention, to tell you the truth. He didn't really answer questions that were just provoking him to some sort of uh, uh, action or whatever or some sort of emotional response. So we need to work out what sort of question it is because it, it will influence the answer that you're going to give the person. Uh, the next uh, one is the importance of humility. Uh, I've, I've already covered that really in, in the idea of uh, agnosticism. It's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, when I was younger, I used to feel like I was letting God down if I said, I don't know. And, and, and then as I grew a little bit older and more arrogant in my intellectualism, I thought I was letting me down by saying, I don't know. Admitting, you know, gee, there's something I don't know. <laughs> But it's okay to say, I don't know. In fact, it's a lot of fun. It, it can be a, a process of discovery. And so if somebody asks you a question that's really difficult uh, to handle, to say, I don't know, but I'm going, to talk, I'm, I'm going to think about that and I'm going to do some exploration about that, it's a good thing. To say, you know what, that troubles me too. You know, why would God allow suffering uh, in, uh, in India at the moment through COVID and just spreading you know, so, so rapidly. Why would God allow that? Why doesn't he intervene? Well, that troubles me too, to tell you the truth. But I'll journey with you and let, let's try to discover some of the stuff that we could discover. It's okay to be troubled by it. It's a context of mystery. It's a context of not knowing. And sometimes you, you'll be able to tell a personal story that throws light not on the, the, the reasons for suffering, but more on the, the character of God in the suffering. Um, Josh Mc, uh, no, not Josh McDowell, Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, uh, says that disappointment is the gap between expectations and reality. You expect something to happen, and your reality is, no, it's not that at all, and disappointment is the width, is the distance between expectation and reality. If, if you're expecting God to stop all suffering for, for people who are righteous, and the reality is, that don't happen. <laughs> well, then you're going to be disappointed with God. So we need to make sure that our expectations of who God is and what God has promised are real according to Scripture, are real according to Scripture. And then the other thing on uh, dealing with the big questions is uh, to, to seek the other person's perspective. You know, this is a conversation. It's not you getting up and saying, thus saith the Lord. It's you inviting another person on a journey uh, through uh, the, the, this question that we're, we're looking at. Uh, what do you think about it? Um, what sort of God are you rejecting? I remember one author, I've forgotten who I think, again, it was Philip Yancey, if I remember correctly. Somebody said to him, oh, I don't believe in your God. You know, it's a lot of rubbish. And he said, oh, tell me about the God you don't believe in. 
And uh, the other person said, oh, you know, this God who's always angry and he's just out to get you. And he described this horrible, wrathful being. And Philip Yancey said, oh, that's good. I don't believe in him either. <laughs> so what sort of God are, are you actually rejecting? And what sort of God would you like to exist? You know, those are some good questions in the midst of dealing with the big ones. Next slide, please, Andrew. So the two questions that you have graciously given me to address you'd notice I've been trying to avoid them for as long as I possibly could. Well, we only got five minutes left, so. <laughs> um, wh- why does it seem that God sanctions wars uh, to do his stuff, to do his work? And I think that's especially coming out of your study of Isaiah. Uh, you know, how, how come God used Assyria and, and warfare to, um, to punish Israel for the way they'd gone? That's the first question. And uh, the second one is, why would a God of love uh, send people to hell? Pretty good question. I reckon there's a big underlying question underneath both of those, and that's this idea of why does a God who is all-powerful and all-loving cause or allow suffering to happen? Next slide, please, Andrew. Um, so the, the the sanctioning of wars. Let's let's have a look at that. So I said we should start from the position of agnosticism, which can include the idea of I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why God would say I'm going to use Assyria through through the through the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to use Assyria uh, to do my work and to, uh, to punish you, and to draw you back to me. Uh, I tell you the truth, I, I, I struggle with that. I, I, I don't really know why he would do that. Uh, there are sometimes, you know, when I read Old Testament passages, I think, oh, I wish this wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> I wish it wasn't there. I could, you know, handle it if it wasn't there. <laughs> but it is, you know, and, and my respect for the Bible and my belief in the Bible, the Bible is God's word, says, well, it is there, I wish it wasn't, but it is there, so let's have a look at it. Um, as a pacifist, uh, and, and that's I would classify myself in that way, um, a peace-loving person, uh, this concerns me too. But there are a few things that I can say that will start a conversation, and that's where I would head into it. So you see that epistemological humility that's coming through. I wouldn't use that term because it's actually a contradiction in terms. If you use the term epistemological humility, you're showing off that you know the word epistemological and how to say it. <laughs> so it's not a good start. Um, so what does the Bible say? That's the question. Well, it's difficult because the things that are described in the Bible are not necessarily sanctioned by God. Uh, these things are not necessarily uh, the things, the, the way that he would want to do it if he had his way. Now you say, you know, I, I can hear you say, hey, hey, hang on, what about the sovereignty of God? Doesn't God always get his way? No, he doesn't. And in our small group, I'd love to discover that uh, with you. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we have to say, well, he certainly allowed it, um, but not necessarily sanctioned it. Sometimes it reads as though God is commanding or sanctioning something but that's more a statement of theological belief, for instance, the sovereignty of God. If it's happened, then God's behind it. That's the sovereignty of God. Then it is absolute reality. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I just came across this recently. 
In 1 Samuel 24, Saul is pursuing David with 3,000 men to kill him. Uh, when he, uh, David, uh, he, he, Saul takes a toilet break in the cave where David's hiding. Uh, David has an opportunity to kill him, but simply cuts off a piece of his clothing without him knowing. He then confronts Saul outside the cave with the fact that he's not going to harm him. And Saul repents of his wrongdoing and returns home. David's respect for a man who is crazy and obsessed with killing him, his respect for him is admirable. He refuses to kill Saul because he's the Lord's anointed king. It's a great example of loving your enemy. But what on earth has it got to do with what I'm supposed to be talking about here? Listen. In chapter 24, verse 4, it says, So they said to David, David's men, they said to David, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. Quote, I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Close quote. He said their belief, and it's recorded in scripture, that God has delivered Saul into your hands for you to kill him. In verse 10 of, of 1 Samuel 24, it says, You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. You see, the idea here is that, oh, this is God's doing. God has, has brought this person. God has brought your enemy, Saul, into your presence so you can kill him. And David then later on says to Saul, you know, some are saying that the Lord has delivered you into my hands and I could kill you. I think this gives us an insight into the interpretation of Scripture. When it says the Lord delivered Saul into David's hands, it's a statement that all things happen in the presence of God. All things happen in the presence of God. Nothing takes God by surprise. He is sovereign. If something happens, it has God behind it. It's an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. But is David going against God's will by not killing, killing Saul? I don't believe so. Because his actions are much more in line with the character of God than if he had gone ahead and murdered him. David says he is the anointed of the Lord. How could I possibly kill the anointed of the Lord? I couldn't do that. And that's much more in line with the character of God than the scriptures were suggesting around it. So the general teaching in the Bible about God and warfare comes back to that character of God. Whenever God describes his character, he describes himself in terms that don't fit with warfare. So all the warfare that we have in the Old Testament doesn't fit God's character as he reveals himself. Now that in itself, you know, is a great time. We could spend a few weeks in our discussion group on that one. It's, it's a heavy one. But the truth, the truth remains, he, he describes himself as being compassionate and, and, and loving and gracious and long-suffering and merciful and forgiving. And he describes the nations as benefiting from Israel and Israel is to be a light to the nations, not, not a conquering force. His desire, his longing, if you like, in the Old Testament is not for warfare, it's for peace and it's for light and it's for compassion and love. God longs for people to avoid the violence 
by getting their lives right with him. You know, the prophet Isaiah keeps on coming back to the people. Get your lives right. Get your lives right. Can't you see? You know, Assyria is that great northern instrument that's going to be used by God to 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 uh, get you back into life. But you can do it now. And God, in those early chapters at Isaiah 1, is it, that where, where he, he, he says, come to me, let us reason together. Let's talk about this. The problem that we've got. We've got a problem, God says. You know, God says to, to, to Israel, we've got a problem. He doesn't say, so I'm going to wipe you out. He says, we've got a problem. Let, come now, let us reason together. Though your, 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 your sins are, are, are as red as they could be, uh, you can be clean. You see, that's the compassion of God. That's where my God comes into all of his wonderful character and shows himself as a God of compassion and love and grace and mercy and so forth. God rejects bloodshed. He even rejected, he, he said David wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war. Well, again, that raises a whole lot of questions because a lot of the war that David was involved in seemed to be sanctioned by God, <laughs> seemed to be sanctioned by God. But that's not God. That's not, not his, his way of doing things. And, and he is, is saying to, to David, you're a great man. You're a man after my own heart, but you're a man of warfare. And the temple is going to stand as a place of prayer for all nations. All nations. And so a man of peace is going to build my temple. He rejects the idea of bloodshed. And then we come to Jesus and Jesus teaching on warfare. Remember, he's the perfect revelation of what God is really like. And he's the prince of peace. And he's starting a subversive revolution, not a, not a warfare. His teaching constantly touches on submission as contrasted to violence. He was a great disappointment to those expecting a violent political messiah. He rebukes Peter for using a sword in anger. And he submits to the way of the cross, a violent death. And he submits to it. When he had all the power, he said, to call a thousand angels, well, not all, legions of angels, you know, to come and to rescue him from that. But he submitted to the way of the cross. So you see, that's my God, that's your God, living it out fully in the flesh. So what do I believe about the topic? Well, I think God used Assyria to punish Israel in Isaiah, that's for sure. But I believe that his way, his perfect way, was for Israel to turn from their sins and to get their act together without having an instrument of punishment. Okay, let's have the next slide. I'm running out of time. <clears throat> the uh, the next one was eternal hell by a God of love. Well, starting from a position of agnosticism again, I don't know. Troubles me too. There are a few things that uh, I could say, though, that will start a conversation. And the first one is around what does the Bible say? Now, this is where it gets really complex. And this is where discussion and, 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 you know, to and fro is really needed because there are four words in the Bible that are translated as hell. Um, one is uh, uh, in Hebrew in the Old Testament and three are in the New Testament in Greek. 
And each one of them are translated as hell. There's Sheol, Gehenna, Hades, and, and Tartarus. Tartarus is only, uh, only used once, and it's used by, by Peter in First Peter. Uh, Sheol, there's 31 references in the Old Testament to Sheol that are translated as hell. And Sheol was actually a grave pit. It was like going to the grave. Uh, and, and everyone goes to Sheol when they die, according to, to a Hebrew theology in the Old Testament. Gehenna, there's 12 uses of that in the New Testament. And Gehenna was a physical place outside the city of Jerusalem that was a burning rubbish dump. People used to put um, uh, uh, child, do child sacrifice there. So it became an evil place, a place of evil, uh, a place of, uh, of, of burning uh, rubbish, but it was connected with the evil of child sacrifice. And it became symbolic of a place of burning the dead who were wicked. That's what Gehenna was. It was a physical representation of uh, burning the dead who were wicked. Hades, there's ten uses of that in the New Testament. Hades is actually the name of the Greek god of the underworld and it's more a reference to Greek mythology than it is to Hebrew theology. That's the wicked that go to Hades uh, as far as Greek mythology is concerned. Now the only word associated with fire in all that is Gehenna. The, the burning rubbish dump. But it's a physical place that's used metaphorically of what the wicked deserve. Jesus uses it, by the way. Uh, the prevailing concept in Jesus' time was that really wicked people would be assigned to the rubbish tip. This would be especially referred to the Romans because remember the Israelites are looking to be freed from the Romans and, and the political Messiah who was coming was going to free them from the Romans. And so the, the, the Romans were wicked and they would be assigned uh, to Gehenna. And that was the prevailing concept. Jesus' main point in talking about the rubbish tip was a lot of other types of sinners actually deserve that sort of punishment. It's not just the political uh, problems. There's a lot of religious problems. And in fact, if you're talking about people who are doing wrong and, and, and who deserve the punishment of the wicked, well, there's a whole lot of people who deserve that who actually are parading around as being righteous. The Pharisees, for instance. You think Romans and tax collectors should be on the rubbish tip. I'm telling you, there's a lot of Pharisees around here that should be on the rubbish tip. Do you see what Jesus is doing with that? He's not, he's not talking about this eternal spiritual place where people are, are, are burning in hell forever. I mean, think about it. An eternal hell is outside of time and it's outside of place, isn't it? Uh, when we talk about forever, isn't that a time-oriented term? Of course it is. And when we talk about place, isn't that a time and place-oriented term? Of course it is. This is one of the topics when we're talking about hell that we have to agree with Paul. We see through a dark, but, but uh, we see through a glass, but darkly. Remember when he's talking about that? Is it First Corinthians or Second Corinthians? When he's talking about the the, the future. And life beyond the grave, we don't really know, he says. We know it's going to be great, but we don't really know. And that is not only applied to heaven, it's applied to the idea of the afterlife for those who are not in Christ as well. This is a position where agnosticism is really, really important. 
Now, I'm, I'm rushing through this, and it's such an important topic. But it's, it's, it, I, I guess one of the main things is to recognise that there is complexity here. We can't just dismiss this by saying, oh, Jesus said people are going to burn in hell with, with conscious um, uh, punishment forever. I don't believe that that's what he's referring to. But it would be really good to talk with you about that. <laughs> I believe that hell is an understanding of what it is to be separated from God. And a lot of people are living hell now in the midst just just like we can live heaven you know the the, the prayer is uh your will be done on earth as it is in heaven to, to bring heaven into right now i believe that a lot of people have brought hell the understanding of being separated from god into their life right now some of the stories of people that you know and that i know that are hellish lives it's just horrible horrible and, and Jesus doesn't march into that life with this condemning sort of attitude of, you know, you're going to rot forever in hell sort of idea. He moves into their lives and says, get your life together. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. Go, go and stop missing the mark. You know, stop missing the mark. Stop living hell. Come into my presence. That's the position of God in all of this. God doesn't want anybody to be eternally punished or, or, or to be eternally uh, separated from him. And that's why he died on the cross. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to bring us into that relationship with him that would avoid that hellish experience right now and forever into the future. So I do want to wrap up very quickly with the next slide because I think there's some really important stuff here with the underlying question um, why does God allow, and some people ask, why does God cause suffering? And the traditional answer is to go back to the fall and to explain the origin of all pain and suffering. Well, that's okay if it's an intellectual theological discussion, you know, that, that, that there was no pain and suffering as God created and then the fall came along and the result of that is pain and suffering. No, that, that's certainly where it's all got to start. It's a good apologetical start, but it doesn't do much for the person grappling with suffering and in need of a pastoral response. The pastoral response with somebody grappling with suffering is, I want to walk with you in the suffering that you're going through. I don't have all the answers. In fact, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I've got any. <laughs> but I want to walk with you. And that's where people are really needing a pastoral response. And I think the book of Job throws light onto this subject. Uh, the subject of agnosticism and walking with you. Job had to learn through the hardest of times what God was really like. He thought he knew God. He thought he knew God. But in chapter 42, it says Job is saying to God, you know, finally when God speaks to him, Job says to God, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. Isn't that interesting? Job, a great man of God, without a doubt. I thought I knew you. 
I'd heard of you, but now I've seen you. I found out what you're really like. And he learned that through the suffering that he went through. I've now discovered what you're really like. I take back my words. And I repent in dust and ashes. That's Job 42, verses 3 to 6. His three friends, remember his three friends? They gave a pastoral response right at the beginning where they just sat with him. Seven days, wasn't it, if I remember rightly? Seven days, just sat with him, not saying a word. Walking with him, if you like, sitting with him through the suffering and the pain, helping him to grapple with this just simply through the silence. And they did a great job of that. And then they opened their mouths for about 38 chapters <laughs> and they lost it because they had all these theological arguments as to what God is really like. You see, there was no agnosticism on their part. They were arrogant. They were epistemologically arrogant. <laughs> they knew it all. His three friends thought they had all the answers, but they were found guilty of intellectual arrogance and declared as knowing nothing about God and his ways. God says in Job 42, I'm angry at you and your two friends. He's talking to Eliphaz. I'm angry at you and your two friends, for you have not spoken truth about me. You need to offer some sacrifices, and then my servant Job will pray for you. And I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your foolishness deserves. I love that verse. (laughs) Because these three guys have been sitting with Job telling him all the reasons why he's so wrong and they're so right and everything. And now God says, I'll get Job, that bloke who you thought was so wrong and so sinful and so terrible and deserving all this stuff. I'll get him to pray for you. I'll, I'll listen to his prayer and I'll forgive you. And I won't deal with you as your stupidity deserves. (laughs) Let's not fall into the trap, folks. In the midst of these big questions, you know, what about hell? Why would a loving God send people to hell? Um, What what, what about um, uh, warfare and and, and does God sanction warfare? Let's not fall into the trap of being like Job's three friends (laughs) and having to hear God's God's words of saying, "You, you need to be prayed for. And I'll forgive you for your arrogance and your stupidity. (laughs) Let's instead choose the pathway of grappling with these things. It's good to grapple, but agnostically. (laughs) Doing it without the arrogance of pretending that I know everything. God reveals so much to us, but there is so much more that we don't understand. Let's keep on asking questions. For we have much to learn, and may I suggest we have much to unlearn. (laughs) Because there's been some stuff that we've been handed that just ain't true, according to Scripture. But I'm not going to be arrogant enough to tell you what that is. (laughs) And let's, let's encourage one another with walking with people in the midst of the big questions. And with the idea of God's love and grace for all humanity as seen in Jesus is absolutely amazing. We have many stories that we can tell about that. That's not to avoid the questions. The questions are good. But we've also got a lot of good encouraging stories to tell along the way. Let's pray. Thanks God that you are God and that we are not. Thanks that you are all-knowing and that we are not. 
Thanks that you reveal stuff to us. Thanks that you have given us minds to be able to think through and to ask questions and keep on thinking and to discuss things. And God, there are some people around us, in our families maybe, right here in this auditorium, maybe online. There are friends that we have, there are next door neighbours, there are people at work who are seriously asking these big questions and others. Please help us to be the people that you've called us to be, uh, to sit with them, to walk with them, to grapple with the issues. But please help us most of all to introduce them to your grace and your mercy and your love and your care for all, all humankind. Please help us to uh, grasp those opportunities throughout this week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.